using a real Bible today. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Our boys have a... uh, a children's Bible. Judah's really taken up with it uh, lately when he's not ripping the you know, cover off of it. Thank goodness for packing tape. He, he likes to read all the stories that have animals in them. So Daniel in the lion's den and this story because there's pigs. <laughs> but what's interesting, and I even read this to him this morning, he asked for the pig story, is that there is a huge element of the story missing in how it's told in our boys', uh, our boys uh, children's Bible. The, the very first verse in this parable that Jesus teaches, in Luke chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus continued, 
there was a man who had two sons. The children's Bible said there was a boy and his father. It completely cuts out this idea that there is a second son, the part of the older brother. And I don't know about you, but I have been around church for a long time, and I have heard this story constantly, but I have always thought of it as, you know, it's the story of the prodigal son. This morning we are going to look at this parable, not as the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of the prodigal sons. Multiple sons. Hence the underline, underline. Or as Klein Snodgrass likes to put it, the compassionate father and his two lost sons. That's a bit of a mouthful. So we'll stick with the prodigal sons. Now we, I don't know about you, if if you're in the same boat as me, but even reading through this parable, getting ready for this week, I was amazed by, oh man, like so much of this parable hinges on the second son. I always thought of it as the story of, you know, the son who was rude and took the money and ran away and then came back and everything's good again. But it's not necessarily a story that has a happy ending. There's the second son. And I think when we turn this story into just highlighting the story of the first son, the younger son, the runaway son, we actually rob this parable of the punch and purpose it's supposed to have with the people who are listening to it. And one of the very purposes Jesus uses when he is telling this story. Look with me if you have a Bible with you or up on the screen. Luke chapter 15, the first couple verses. This sets up the context of Jesus using this parable. It said, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees, And the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then, Jesus tells some parables. He tells a parable about a shepherd who has 90, who has 100 sheep, but one goes missing. And he leaves the 99 to go find the one and then rejoices over the fact that he found the one sheep. He tells another parable right after that of a woman who has 10 coins. And she loses one and she searches her whole house and she's sweeping and she she finally finds the coin and she rejoices and invites friends over to celebrate that she found her lost coin. And then he tells this parable of the lost sons. This parable was told to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, as well as the tax collectors and the sinners who were all gathered around Jesus at the time. This weird eclectic group of the overtly religious and those who don't look religious at all from the outside. Jesus was speaking to both of them here with this parable, and it's important for us to see that in how we read it. It's as important for us to see the second son and that importance to the story as it is for us to see the first son and the sinner come home storyline. But before we get ahead of ourselves too much in this parable, I want us to kind of walk through it a little bit. Because if you're like me and you've spent a lot of time in church over the years, 
you've heard this story before. And maybe our over-familiarity with this story has caused us to kind of gloss over and not really listen to it as if we're listening to it for the first time. I, I did this kind of exercise this week of, of imagining what I would be expecting if I was listening to this story the first time. If I didn't know what the ending was like, or I didn't know how the story goes. It's interesting. We're also listening as, you know, 21st century Kings County PEI residents. Like, we are not first century Jews, and so we're not going to pick up on things in the same way as the original listeners, whether it be the tax collectors and sinners or the Pharisees and teachers of the law were listening to this parable. This is a beautiful story. It's a relatable story. It's a popular story. In fact, this is probably one of the most popular parables, and it has weaseled its way into our kind of cultural conscience where the word prodigal means something in our language, right? You talk about a, a prodigal as, as someone who has kind of, they're the, the wayward child. In the same way that we use the word a good Samaritan to refer to someone who, who does good things unexpectedly. These kind of phrases of Jesus' parables, the popular ones at least, have worked their way into our culture. But let's not let that familiarity cloud us to what's going on here. So walk through the story with me. If you've got a Bible, follow along. It's not going to be up on the screen. It's just way too long for that. But we're going to, we're going to talk through this a little bit. The, the first big hinge for us as we read this story is the fact that the younger son of this wealthy man asks for his share of the estate. This is a big and bold ask. This is not something that, is, that, that children do on a regular basis. The fact that he went to his father and said, I want the inheritance I'm supposed to get when you die now was a bold move. It was a dishonoring move. It was a move that says to the father, not quite, I wish you were dead, but I don't want the kind of life that you want for me. I don't want to follow your path. I don't want to walk in your footsteps. I don't want to be under your authority. I want to take what I see to be mine and go my own way with it. There's an entitlement to it. The firstborn son, the older of the two, he would have gotten his share of the inheritance or it would have been allotted to him at this time when the father divides up the assets. But what's something important for us to remember about kind of the first century agrarian culture that they were in was that the firstborn son would have gotten at least double what the second son would have gotten as an inheritance. To be the firstborn son, the older brother, the one who stays, he would have been in charge of making sure that the father in his old age is looked after. He's the one that once the father dies, takes over the family business, and he is in charge of, of making sure that the land stays in the family line. He's the one who would have to take on kind of the patriarchal father figure of the family when the son goes, or when his father goes. So maybe the younger son says, listen, I'm not going to be in charge of my own life now with my father alive. 
Even when he's dead, my older brother is going to be the one in charge. So I want to take charge of my own life and go my own way. But think about, I mean, we live in a small rural town on PEI. And word spreads, rumor spreads very quickly. Imagine how that would have spread of, oh, you hear of so-and-so's son has taken the inheritance, has left town. The dishonor that would have brought onto the family. This breaking with tradition and the passing down of land to be kept in the family. No wonder the younger son left town. Like, the, the scrutiny and the, the judgment that would have been on him, the social shame, because he brought dishonor upon his father, upon his family. The Pharisees listening to this story, they would have been like, aha, got him. He dishonored his father and mother. He broke one of the commandments. He should be beaten if not stoned. That's what should happen to him. No wonder he left town. No wonder he got out of there and left his community. The story continues. He leaves town. He squanders the wealth. The big brother says in prostitutes. The text earlier says in wild living. However you want to come up with that in your imagination. But soon the money runs out. He's hit with a famine in the far off land he goes to. He hires himself out to a Gentile, a non-Jew. He becomes essentially an indentured servant or a slave and works with pigs. Now, if you know anything about Jewish customs or law, one, to work for a Gentile, to be a slave, to work with pigs, like that is like strike upon strike upon strike, and then to be hit with a famine. Like the Pharisees, the teachers of the law listening to this, they're like, ah, this is where Jesus is going with the story. You dishonor your father and mother, this is what happens. You end up working for Gentiles, sleeping with the pigs, and God sends a famine. This is your curse for breaking the law. This is what Jesus is getting at. It's a, a woeful tale of consequences of what happens when you make poor choices they would have thought that was the punchline. But there's a phrase that I love in this parable. And in the New International Version, which I'm reading from, it says, but then he came to his senses. There's a point when he's at the lowest of low, a slave to a Gentile, working with pigs, suffering in hunger from a famine. And in that low place, he comes to his senses. He realizes when he's longing for the food that the pigs were eating, how much better life was with his dad. How much life would be better if he was even one of his father's servants, let alone a son. And so says, yeah, I've sinned. I sinned against heaven and against you, is his phrase. In in, uh, the, the, Jewish, uh, the, the Jewish religion, or what, the way that they spoke at that time, and Matthew picks up on this especially, is they would often substitute heaven for God. Just, just as a way of 
making sure you don't say the Lord's name in vain, we're not even going to say God, we're going to say heaven. So I've sinned against heaven and against you as a way of saying I've sinned against God and against my Father. We see this in the way Matthew substitutes the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God when he talks about that in his gospel. He realizes he's done wrong. He realizes what he had done isn't just an offense to his father, but has broken God's law, that it was an offense towards God himself, that he sinned. This is him coming to a place of repentance. This essential moment at the lowest of low of realizing, I can't do it on my own. Realizing going my own way leads to dead ends. I'm not worthy to be a son but maybe my father will welcome me back as a servant. We see humility in his repentance. He acknowledges he sins before God and his father and has this genuine sense of humility that I'm not even worthy to be welcomed back as a son. I think this shows us a a picture of what takes place in genuine repentance in a genuine desire to turn from our sin back towards God. Now, I don't know what the expectations would have been for a Pharisee or a teacher of the law or even for the the sinners and tax collectors listening to Jesus' parable, but I don't think any of them would have expected the kind of response that the father has to his son as he comes home. You know, I I imagine him walking back the long road home from whatever far-off country he was and how many times he rehearsed his, you know, repentance apology speech. Dad, I know I did this wrong. I know I dishonored you. I'm sorry. I don't, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Let me sleep in the barn and, and at least you know, eat the leftovers from your table as a servant. And how many times he would have had that you know, speech perfected as he walked back home. And what we read is that when the father saw him, while he was still a long way off, The father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. What I love about this is when it seems like the father was waiting for him. Like he's seen his his son coming from a, a long way off. His eyes were on the road. And the father was willing to go run to him. And you've probably heard this like preaching point beaten to death, but the fact that that like a, a patriarch of the family in that time, like they don't run, they don't pick up their robe and, and book it down the road. That's undignified. But he was willing to kind of be humiliated for the sake of celebrating the fact that his son was home. It wasn't, uh, well, you owe me all this money back. It wasn't a, we're going to have to set some ground rules. It wasn't a, do you realize what you cost me? His heart was moved with compassion, and he ran to his son and wrapped his arms around him and kissed him. He welcomed his son home. We're going to get a little nerdy here, all right? We're going to, we're going to do some Greek work. And I... I I looked up this phrase, um, he was filled with compassion. When we talk about the father. This is just kind of like, this was yesterday afternoon, like realizing this. The Greek, uh, the Greek word here, let me see if I can, 
read it well. Splegnizomai. I have it up on the, the screen in a uh, confusing chart here. That, that Greek word is very long. Splegnizomai. It means to have pity, to have compassion. You can see the different ways it's translated. Here we have selected filled with compassion because that's what's in this particular story. And what it means is in the depth of your being, and in fact, literally it means he felt it in his bowels. But our translators, knowing how that sounds in English, kind of changed it a little bit so we could understand the concept. He was filled with compassion. He felt it in his innermost being. And what's so interesting about this word when it is used in the New Testament, it is only ever used, talking about someone who is supposed to reflect God, used of Jesus himself, or the Good Samaritan. Someone who Jesus in his parable says has a grasp of what the kingdom of God is. The only people we read in the New Testament who were filled with compassion in this way, the only time this word is used, is when Jesus saw the crowds And in the depth of his being, he was filled with compassion. And so instead of going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he tells his disciples, let's go. I'm I'm moved by these people, and I want to heal their sicknesses and diseases and drive out demons. He saw the crowds, and he was moved in the depth of his being. The good Samaritan, seeing this man that he should have hated, beaten up on the side of the street, was moved in his innermost being. I have to do something. The king that forgives his debtors in another parable that reflects God's forgiveness of people. He took pity on the man who who had no way of paying anything back and was moved in his innermost being to forgive the debt. This, I think, captures for us so clearly the heart of our God. That he is moved in his most inner being towards us. That he is filled with compassion. And we see that in the Father and how he responds to his son coming home. We see it in the Good Samaritan. We see it in the king forgiving the debtors. And we see it most often, eight times you'll notice in the New Testament from the life of Jesus. To be filled with compassion in the way that the father receives his prodigal son captures the heart of what the kingdom of God is all about. To be filled with that kind of compassion. To be willing to be humiliated by picking up your robes and running out to him. By not beating him over the head with the things he's done wrong. But to welcome him not as a servant, but say, my son has come home. So I'm going to wrap him with my robe, the best robe that we have in the household. I'm going to put a ring on him. And this ring is like a signet ring, a, a ring that you would stamp a wax seal to say, this is from this family. Like, this is a piece of jewelry that says, I am this man's son. I have all the authority of what it means to be his son. To have sandals put on him by the servants as a way of saying, no, you're definitely not a servant. The servants are putting these sandals on your feet. You're my son and I'm welcoming you home. 
with all the benefits and glory of what it means to be my child. And he throws a party and he says, my son is home. He was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. How much does that relate to us, though? Those of us who, whatever our life has looked like, we have been far off from God. And by the grace of God, we realized, we came to our senses. We realized how much better it is to be in line with our Creator, to come back and to say, no, I'm not worthy, I'm sorry for what I've done, and to be welcomed back with the kiss and the hug of the Father, and to be granted sonship, and to be wrapped in His robe, and to be treated not as a servant, but a member of His own household, and to be celebrated that you're no longer dead, but you're alive. You're no longer lost, but you're found. Is that your story? It's definitely part of mine. But the parable doesn't stop there. It'd be easy if it was. It'd be a nice, cleaner ending. Fits better in children's Bibles. But there's the twist ending. This twist ending that leaves us uncomfortable and cringing and is actually the one-two punch to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as Jesus is teaching this. The shock to the reader is the contrast between the father's full of compassion response to his son coming home and the older brother's complete opposite. Instead of the joy of the father, we see anger in the son. Instead of willing to join the celebration, the older son boycotts it. So I'm not going in. I'm not being part of any of that. Instead of compassion, he lives in comparison. I never disobeyed you at all. I've worked all my life for you, and what do I get? When we see Jesus highlighting this in the parable, this heart of the older brother, which captures so much the, the position and the thought and the theology of the Pharisees, we see this setting up contrast of two, two ideas of what the kingdom of God is like. For Jesus, the kingdom of God is a father who welcomes those who are willing to come to him in. Those who are willing to say, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be your son and welcome me as a servant. The kingdom of God is a father who welcomes them in. But in the vision of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the kingdom of God is a purified Israel where the sinners are purged. And the movement of the Pharisees, which was much loved at the time, was a movement of we need to get back to our religious roots. We need to purge the sin from our land so that God will return and make things right. We need to purify the land, purify the heathens, the Gentiles, the tax collectors, the sinners. And we who are righteous get to be part of it. We have two competing pictures of the kingdom of God. And we see the filth of the heart in one versus the other. 
one that assumes I am righteous. I've never disobeyed your commandments. So what do I get? Versus the heart that says, welcome. You're loved. You're forgiven. You're part of the family. What struck me though most as I was reading this, as much as I want to throw the Pharisees or the older brother or whoever under the bus in this parable, that's not the heart of the father either. The father goes out to the older son. You catch that as you're reading it? The father doesn't just stay and party with the younger son in the, in the celebration once they've you know, killed the fattened calf and they're having this big party. The father leaves the party and goes out to the older son. He says, come on in. Why do you have to stay out here? I want you to be part of this too. You're missing out on the joy of what it means to be my son because of your posture right now. But I want you to be part of this. Jesus' heart, even to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in teaching this parable, isn't just a, I'm only welcoming sinners now and you religious folks, you guys are the bad guys. It's a, no, you guys come in too. Come see my heart. The heart that I have for the sinner is a heart that I have for the Pharisee and the religious and the churchy people who think they have it all together. You're welcome in. So there's two things that I think we need to hear from this parable as we listen to the teachings of Jesus. To those of us in the room who we primarily identify with the runaway son, where we're the one who we wanted to go our own way, we didn't want to follow in our father's footsteps, we kind of had the entitlement of I'm going to be the ruler of my own life and go my way. And we saw the dead end that that leads to? Maybe you're in a spot right now where you realize you're in a bit of a spot of, of rebellion, of running. And who knows, maybe, maybe being in church this morning for you is like that first step back home. You've come to a place of maybe coming to your senses and you want to be assured that the heart of the Father to you is one where he's going to run to you and welcome you in. It is. He wants to welcome you back, not as someone that he can use as an example, but as someone he can welcome back as his own child. We see this parable come to life in the cross of Christ, where he gives his life the innocent dying for the guilty so that those of us filled with the filth of our sin, that's all of us, by the way, are welcomed back and cleansed and forgiven. There is room for us at the family table. But also this parable is a word to those of us who are very churchy. To those of us who have spent a lot of time in church services, reading the Bible, who, you know, we're, we know this thing inside and out. We, we know what God expects of us. We feel like we have things together, or we like to portray that at least. 
the question to those of us who may reluctantly be identifying that way is, is our heart reflecting the heart of the Father? Is our heart one that is quick to welcome those in who seem like outsiders? Who are quick to have the same kind of humbling compassion to the pregnant teenage mom? Or the trans person struggling with gender dysphoria who is struggling to understand who on earth they are when their physiology and their, their, their internal sense of identity is incongruent. To the lesbian who's encountered Jesus and isn't on the same page with her partner. To the person who wronged my family 30 years ago and we still don't talk to them. When they walk through the door, will we be the older brother or will we have the heart of the father? My prayer is that we would be a church with the heart of the father. However you've seen yourself in this story, the compassion of the father goes both towards the runaway and towards the self-righteous older brother. Both of us need the Father. Both of us need to be welcomed in and to accept that invitation. God has compassion on the one who runs and to the one who is too good to run. Let's not miss the beauty of the kingdom of God by trying to do it our own way. Would you pray with me? Jesus, your teaching is both beautifully complex and also so magnificently simple. And my prayer this morning, Lord, is, is that we didn't, we didn't complicate it too much to miss the point of what you're trying to say. Might we come back to our Father? Whether we're running or whether we are stubbornly self-righteous, may we celebrate and have the compassion and joy that you do over the one lost sheep that's found, over the, the coin that was lost, the, the, the penny that's found of, of the ten or the son that returns home. God, you have such a momentous and, and deep love for us. Would you burn in us the passion to be able to display that love to others as well? May we be a church, a people, that reflect the heart of our Father. In your name we pray. Amen.